Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where it is, I'm happy to say, the 10th anniversary of the History Slam podcast. Our first episode came out 10 years ago on July the 11th. 2012. It has been a fun decade to be sure. And I can't believe that it's been 10 years of doing this. This is the 221st episode that we've done over that time. So it's pretty easy math at this point, 22 episodes a year. And we have really run the gamut in terms of talking about various historical topics on this show. One of the first ideas that we ever had was the Prime Minister's Fantasy Draft, which I believe is episode six. And we've gone everywhere. Uh, You know, I think we could have over these 10 years. There are certain areas that I would like to have done more on, certain discussions, certain things that we tried to set up that we couldn't, which just means that there's more to do in the future. And we, of course, are going to continue the show. We have some announcements coming up on ways the show is going to change and look a little different moving forward. But there's certainly no shortage of things to talk about. And I've very much enjoyed it along the way. And and what I wanted to do to mark the 10 years of the show is to go back and talk to our first three guests that we ever had on the show. And I reached out, and fortunately, they were all available to talk with me. So first up, it's Ian Milligan, who was a graduate student at York University back when we talked at the Congress, the CHA, in 2012 at the University of Waterloo. He is the first episode of the History Slam podcast, but not the first one we recorded. That distinction goes to the great Victoria Lamb Drover, who is now in administration at SIT out in Saskatchewan. So we also reached out and were able to talk to her. And then finally, the man, the myth, the legend himself, Aaron Boys, is back. He was not part of the first three episodes of the series, but he and I recorded a pilot episode of the show to pitch to the editors at activehistory.ca back in the spring of 2012. He came on later and we re-recorded that topic for his first official appearance on the show. And of course, he has been back many, many times since. So I wanted to reach out and talk to them and reflect upon what their career paths have been. Because at the time, in, in the spring of 2012, We were all graduate students at various institutions, and we have all gone off into very different directions in our careers. Ian, of course, is a full professor now at the University of Waterloo and a vice president. Victoria, as mentioned, is in administration, and Aaron works for the federal government. And I, of course, have had my own journey through various forms of employ over those 10 years as well. And I'll reflect on those with the guest and a little bit at the end as well. But it's one of these things that in the discussion around graduate studies and history recently, there is debate over whether or not people should do a PhD in history. What's the benefit of it? And a lot of the 
discussion that comes out of universities and people who are professors seems to be that if you can't get an academic job, which most people who get a PhD in history will not be able to get an academic tenure track job, then it is a waste of time. And I don't believe that. I think there's a lot of value in a PhD of doing a PhD for the sake of doing a PhD. There's caveats to it. And, and as Ian and I talk about, Victoria and I and Aaron and I, we all would caution anybody who wants to do one to go in, as Ian says, eyes wide open. But I think there's value in it. And looking at our respective careers and the paths that we have each taken, I think there's value in that. And anybody who's considering doing a PhD or just if you're curious about what a PhD can do for you uh, in history, I think we have four very unique and distinct stories. So I wanted to revisit those and reflect on what this decade has been and also just catch up with people who I very much enjoy. So this is what the 10th anniversary spectacular is going to be catching up with our first three guests. So without any further ado, let's get right to those chats, starting off with Ian Milligan. Ian Milligan, the first ever episode guest, is here with me now. Ian, how are you today? I'm great, Sean. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm so happy that you're here. Ten years later, the episode one of the History Slam released July the 11th, 2012. Ian, we recorded that episode during Congress at the Canadian Historical Association annual meeting at the University of Waterloo, where you are now a full professor. Uh, what do you remember, if anything, about Congress 2012? Not necessarily about the recording, but about that point in your career. Yeah, I mean, the big thing I remember is that the next week I had an interview for a job at the University of Waterloo. And I thought, what an what awful timing. Usually Congress is fun. You know, you go around, you're, you're hanging out, you're asking, you're, you're just totally yourself and me being very conscious that one week later, I have to come for an interview with these people who I don't really know and might be lurking in any corner of this conference. So I had to be, had to be on my, you know, most professional behavior the whole time. But no, I remember the conference really well. I mean, I remember our podcast because it was my first time in the University of Waterloo's history department. We recorded <laughs> in the common room. So it's a room that I've been in hundreds of times afterwards, but the very first time was with you. And, you know, I also remember it was a really, it was probably one of the Congresses I remember the most for having lots of attempts at public outreach. I think there was like a War of 1812 mini conference maybe that I went to for part of the day. I think there was a public event at the Waterloo Public Library one evening. It was, you know, I, I thought it was a really good hub of activity. And there was, you know, I love Congress. There was a great beer tent. Um, even if you don't drink beer, I think the beer tents are really good for bringing people together. And that, I basically judge my Congresses based on how many random encounters did I have at whatever central hub there is, whether it's the book fair or the beer tent or, or et cetera. So yeah. And, and I, well, I think it, it benefits, Waterloo benefits from being pretty centralized, whereas some other ones where it's harder for people from either the East Coast or the West Coast to get to, you know, Waterloo or really anywhere around Toronto, most places have a direct flight from Toronto. So transportation wise, it's a little easier uh, to get out to Waterloo than, than some other places where Congress has been. So you're going to see a lot of folks from across the country. Yeah, as someone who's been to most congresses, it took, a, took a bit of a break. And then during COVID, obviously, you know, dot, dot, right. dot. It was a great event. <laughs> yeah. 
So as I mentioned off the top, you are now a full professor at the water, University of Waterloo. And you, as you said, had your interview back in 2012. Uh, that feels to me like a pretty quick rise up to full professor. You've also now shifted a little bit into admin. So what has your career path been? And if I were to tell you or were to have told you in 2012 at Congress that 10 years later you'd be sitting in the big corner office of the ivory tower uh, up at the, the central part of University of Waterloo, what would your reaction have been? Well, I mean, I should clarify, I'm only an associate vice president, so we don't get the corner office. Get, yeah. No, I, I think it's a, yeah, probably, you know, probably surprise. 2012 was a real junction point. I mean, it, it, in some ways it was terrifying because I didn't know what was next. In another way, it was exciting because I didn't know what was next. Um, you know, I was interviewing at the University of Waterloo. Ultimately, you know, that worked out and I've been here for 10 years and it's been a very, very successful 10 years at this institution. But, you know, if I hadn't gotten that job, I was already beginning to apply for non-academic jobs. I was looking into interesting opportunities in scholarly communication, um, you know, academic consulting, all sorts of things like that, which I was also equally excited about. It was a real sense of, you know, possibility and potential for where, where things could go. But yeah, ultimately I, I was successful. I got the job at the University of Waterloo. Um, it's like everything, their good, healthy dose of luck. They decided to hire a digital historian. Um, they put digital history on, on their list of desired positions in their Canadian history job advertisement. And I think I was probably like the only digital historian on the market at the time. At least he was doing <laughs> computational history in post-war Canadian history. Like it was a very, you know, it was a serendipitous job advertisement in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, really leaned into it. It's been 10 years of you know, moving from when we talked, I was still doing a little bit of 1960s Canadian social history to really changing into methods and thinking about what digital history is going to mean for the historical profession, whether it's through web archives or digitized microfilm and all sorts of things like that. So if you look at your the, the books, what you've published, uh, you start with Rebel Youth, which is based off your dissertation, right? And then uh, it moves into exploring big historical data with the, who I like to call the other Sean Graham and Scott Wengart. Uh, and then, of course, History in the Age of Abundance uh, in 2019. So as you say, it, it has been or it seems to me that it has been a shift from what you your first book was into uh, methodology. And I'm curious to, to ask about how you then consider your career, because I think so much of what historians do, or at least the public perception of what historians do, is looking back. Whereas what you're doing a lot of is looking forward and, and where the discipline is going to be and how it's going to have to change as we continue to move into and lean into uh, digital records and digital record keeping. Uh, so just it, like, how do you consider yourself compared to maybe your colleagues, or even when you meet people who aren't in academia and you say you're a historian, but you're this is what you do? Like, just how, how do you kind of internally reconcile those two things yeah it's funny because i i was at a i you know it was a canada day gathering and uh, doing historical trivia and of course everybody's like oh the historian's here he's gonna get all the answers it's like no i don't do that kind of history i i don't know the name of the vote that did this and the world but i can tell you about maybe how you know about the name of that vote because it was microfilmed and digitized yeah i mean i think the shift for me has really been 
and it kind of makes sense. I mean, the, the reason I got interested in history was, you know, actually looking at primary sources. I think that's for a lot of us, right? We actually look at the primary source and we go, wow, this is amazing. The raw building blocks, yada, yada of history. We write our thesis, our dissertation. We're super excited about that. And so I describe it, you know, what I'm really interested in is how knowledge is constructed. You know, how do we, how do we know what we know? What, what survives from the past to inform the writing of history? And then how does that shape the way we do it? So whether that's, you know, the choices that an archivist is making right now as we talk, they decide, hey, we're going to keep this record. We're not going to keep that record. 50 years, a historian comes along to the archive, writes their history. You know, it's almost like the archivist co-wrote it with them. Same with digital sources. You know, what, uh, what is preserved? What ends up on the internet? What ends up not on the internet? What are things that you have to travel across the country to read? What are things that you can plug into your web browser to read? And all of that I find really, really fascinating. So I, I think of myself, it's almost like, you know, it's historiography. It's all the boring classes that students don't like, <laughs> but it's really the big questions of how do we know, you know, how do we know what we know and why? And hopefully through my work, helping to support other historians so they can do the really good work. And that like makes my day. You know, I have some work on newspapers and OCR. It's been cited quite a bit. And it's like really cool. Google Scholar occasionally pings me and I'll see, you know, once a year I'll go see who's using this. And you're like, this is awesome. Like I'm supporting like somebody doing like 19th century Flemish history, you know, did something a little bit different because of my scholarship. And so I, I view myself, you know, it, it's, you're not going out to chapters to read my book on the War of 1812, but maybe, you know, part of that additive process of historical scholarship. It's just helping people be more critical about, hey, Historians spend our entire life sitting in front of computers now. What does that mean about the, the work that we do? How do you think of it in terms of students, too? Because I imagine when you started, a lot of students came in, and certainly they would have been literate in a lot of the tools. Uh, but I would assume not to the extent now. And certainly in my own case with the radio stuff that I do when I when I started, and I was like, hey, everyone, let's let's do some audio editing. Everybody came to the little workshop I did about how to audio, how to edit audio. And the last time I did it, I think only two people stayed. Uh, and everyone else was like, no, we know how to do this. So have you had a similar experience just in terms of dealing with students and even perhaps colleagues on the evolution of their understanding and their willingness to use some of the digital tools that are available to them? I'd say, you know, it's funny. Like I haven't, I should disclose, I haven't taught digital history in Oh gosh, probably like three or four years now. Um, so back in, and I did it similar, like run the students through audacity. Let's do some, let's right. do some funky yeah. little, let's make your voice sound a little bit better, right? <laughs> the comes and all out of the, the audio. You know, I think for me, probably because I tend to do more computational stuff, I haven't found a significant shift. You know, I think in some ways that's because computing is so much more accessible and which is great and it's the right direction to go. But it means that some of these tools you're like, okay, you know, open up the file you just downloaded on your desktop. And like you, you know, students having difficulty because they really don't think in that way of hierarchical file systems, right? They're just used to finding information because it's presented to them better. Yeah. And similarly with information seeking behavior, um, you know, second year students, some really sophisticated, some not, but still a lot of like uncritical you know, they, they Googled for the source and they found the source and they mm. used it. And I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man because I actually, part of the arguments I make in my scholarship is that that's like what we all do. Like that's, yeah. like whenever you do any, like if it's digitized on Google Scholar or if it's open access or if it's the first two pages of Google, like it gets cited more by professors. It's not just students citing it more, like everybody cites it more and everybody uses it more. And I think that's because in general, we're, 
even if we're critical in some dimensions of how we consume information, we lapse back into uncriticality because these interfaces push us to do that, right? Like right. It's, you're not going to read every page on Google. It's not designed to do that. You're going to keyword search. And that's the same logic applied to everything. So I, I think I haven't seen a big shift because I think our systems get, are getting so much better that all of the work and thinking and algorithms in the back end are so abstracted that they're rarely made conscious to students or professors or researchers alike. So what is the impact then on the final product, the history itself? Because I think back to when I was researching the dissertation, all I had was the sheet of paper of what was in the boxes. So I, I quite literally went through every box that had CBC documents between 34 and 41, I think were my cutoff dates or something in that, that range. Whereas if I had been able to search, I probably wouldn't have done that and probably would have missed something along the way. Yeah. So, so is, is there uh, an impact perhaps negatively or, or positively on the way then we seek out information through these systems? Yeah, I, I don't think it's an, I, I try not to frame it as like a negative or positive thing, but it's just a thing. Right. You know, on one level, like your CBC archives were mediated, right? There was a CBC archivist yeah. in the 40s who would have weeded and picks what they thought was significant and, you know, decided not to accession what they didn't think was significant. And then today, if you're, you've got an interface, you know, many of these interfaces, Internet Archive aside, don't even let you skim. So if you wanted to reproduce that experience of going through a box, it's really hard. You know, if you try to do that on like ProQuest or something, like it's almost impossible to do it. You got right. long load times. You can't skim you're going to start keyword searching. And keyword search, it's not, you know, it's imperfect. And I always try to encourage people, try different search strings because, you know, OCR, the, the process of finding those search strings, it's pretty messy. Like, you know, somewhere between one and five, one and 10 words isn't going to get captured. And so you have to be conscious of what you might be missing when you do that. But conversely, if you can keyword search and you can make these databases, you can do really broad research, right? Like hmm. you see that sometimes these projects and you'll see a student doing a project that is only possible because they're keyword searching because they're looking across like 50 years of history. They're looking across 10 different periodicals. They're searching across archives, you know, massive amounts of information. And so all I think that they need to do is just be conscious of that and say, okay, like I've gained some things. I can go through, you know, literally like billions of pages of information. And that's really great. But I should just think, what might I be missing? What strategies might I use to kind of overcome that? What am I, what am I losing while also gaining this fantastic, you know, access to information? And so I think it's just, you know, being, being conscious and thinking about, you know, how is it different? You know, me sitting in 2022 versus, you know, 15 years ago, say, when you were doing your dissertation or something like that, you know, how, how is research different and what are we doing differently and how does that potentially impact the work that we do today? How do you think your background and uh, what you did with like rebel youth and your, your social history in the 1960s, how did, did, did that set you up in any way to do this, whether methodologically or in, in some of the other stuff that you were doing then, or, or is this, because I, I, I've, for as long as I've known you, I, you've always struck me as a guy who's just interested in these things on a personal level, uh, independent of any professional interest in like computing and, and big data and all. Like that's just something that you would probably read about anyway uh, and would be interested anyway. So, you know, how much of that training experience that you had going through it at York has been put to use practically uh, in your career since? I mean, probably in two ways. So first, I mean, it trained me to be a historian um, and probably because I do, I work, I'm interdisciplinary. So I, 
run research team. I'm working with, you know, computer scientists and librarians. And then in my, my role here at administrative role, I, I'm working with people from literally every discipline under yeah. the sun that we have here at University of Waterloo. And so it trained and you realize historians approach things in a certain way. Um, you know, we think about context, we're thinking about continuity and change. Uh, we're thinking about, you know, close readings of documents, but close readings of documents as embedded in a particular time and place. And I think that's a really good sensibility that historians bring. You know, that's why I think historians get so many great jobs around the economy and in the public sector and in the private sector. And, you know, I suspect we're somewhat overrepresented in administration because I think we bring, we just have that good view of like, you know, the big picture and how to situate things into their proper context. And I think historians do that really well. So that's one part of it. And the second part of it is, you know, particularly with Rebel Youth, which was a study of young workers, students, and new leftists in the 1960s. When I think about how I wrote that, I kind of wrote it backwards. So the last chapter of the book is about this small group of students who go support a strike in, in North Toronto in 1973. But that was the first chapter I wrote. And then the second chapter I wrote was more a case study of, you know, three three events across the country, you know, yada, 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 until the last chapter I wrote was the big one. And it was the big history of like, you know, the big picture of youth in the 1960s and the baby boom generation. And I found myself as I was writing this being like, I like this the best. I like writing big history. This is fun thinking about generational scale in English Canada and realizing how little information there was. And so it was actually that segue. The last chapter I wrote in my dissertation was the biggest thinking one. And then it came time to think about what a postdoc project would be. And I sort of thought, okay, well, let's do a history of, you know, 1990s youth, but let's use the internet as a source because that mm. that's something I wish I'd had in the 60s when I basically had no sources to draw on to understand youth. Do you think that that experience then, and, and I, I think a lot of people can relate to not writing things in order, but maybe not having as as big of a revelation uh, writing that last chapter, because, you know, we'll talk to Aaron in a little bit. I know by the time he wrote his last chapter, he was just ready to be done with the whole thing yeah, yeah. Uh, and just, yeah. just get it out, out of the way. Uh, but do you think that that experience for you uh, and, and moving into big data has, like, if you were to read Rebel Youth now, do you, do you think you would read it in a different way than when you wrote it, and even though you had that experience writing it, uh, that you'd look mm. back at it in a, in a different light. Oh, for sure. I haven't, I haven't cracked the spine of that book in probably <laughs> like eight years. Because well, I know as soon as I do, I'll spot a, I'll spot a typo. Yeah, I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to go back and see what I think. I mean, I'm sure, you know, I think like anything, there'd be, There'd be some uncritical use of digital sources that I might pick up on, probably a bit less. I spent a lot of time on microfilm for that book, you know, mainly because I was doing student newspapers, which it's still for the most part aren't digitized. But, you know, the Toronto Star and the Globe Mail are there and the Toronto Telegram's not. Like there is a there is a bias to some degree towards the digitized sources. Yeah, and I think, I, you know, I'm sure I'd look back at it and find parts that are just naive, right? There's probably statements... And part, made that part, you know, I, I argued, you know, the 1960s were the decade of labor. I think might have been the opening sentence of the book. You know, it was big thinking, big argument. And I know some of the book reviews of it, you know, took it to task for being unduly provocative. So you never know. Maybe today if I wrote it, I'd nuance it too much. And it wouldn't be fun to read. It, I mean, not that it was a, not that it's an Air Force novel, but it did try to make a big argument. It just said the 1960s are a decade of labor, which is being deliberately provocative, right? Because, of course, we know... There's more dimensions to that. Um, For sure. 
and, and intersectionality. Like I, there was a little, there was a little bit of what we today call intersectionality. The intersection of, you know, class was my main category of analysis there. And then some gender and probably just a tiny bit of race and ethnicity. And I think obviously you would approach it differently today um, by thinking about, you know, probably thinking more critically about, you know, the whiteness of many of the people I was studying. Yeah. And I think that's one of the main shifts that we've had in the discipline since 20, I guess I started a PhD in 2009. And the the focus on different perspectives is, is much greater than it was at that time. So I'm curious for you as someone who's in the academic world still, how would you assess the changes in the discipline broadly in the 10 years uh, since you got the job? And uh, where, where do you think it stands right now? That's a good question. I mean, I, because I've taken an interdisciplinary turn and I'm working in digital history and the digital humanities, I'm a little bit disconnected from, you know, probably where we're at in Canadian history right now. But, you know, certainly more attention to categories of analysis um, and the ways in which they intersect. I mean, that's undeniable. It used to be, you know, I think intersectionality as a concept isn't totally new to historical scholarship. We've always thought about race, class, and gender. But I think we now viewed them more, you know, the interweaving of those identities quite a bit more and are more critical about that. Certainly Indigenous histories um, and thinking about Indigenous perspectives and thinking about how we relate to community organizations, that's that's really changed. Um, you know, I think that most notably for research with Indigenous people, it really is with Indigenous people now. It's, you know, respecting agency, it's respecting communities, it's respecting all sorts of new ethical protocols that probably weren't on the radar 10 years ago or weren't on the radar for everybody 10 years ago. And I think, yeah, just in, in probably a broader awareness of the ways in which historical research, you know, even is mediated in different ways. So, I mean, the recent shift to really thinking about the labor conditions of how historians work, thinking about, you know, the impact of casualization, what that has meant for research and the impact of, you know, the pressures on graduate students and the pressures on early career researchers I think that's all much more explicit. And I think that's explicit in a good way because we are also considering, you know, when you read a book of scholarship, you know, just, I always say historians are good at context. I think I just said that just a few minutes ago <laughs> and the context of how the book was produced matters. Right. And I think we're more attuned to that. You read a book and you, you treat it because you understand the, the, the conditions that went into making that work of scholarship possible. Um, and I think we're, I think we're getting better at that. And the profession is, is stronger as a result. So the last question, and I'm going to ask everybody this, is what advice would you give, or not even would, because I'm sure you do get asked this, uh, given your position, of from students, like whether undergrad or even master's students who, who want to pursue a PhD in history, knowing a lot of what you just said about some of the precarity within the, the profession right now, what is your advice to prospective graduate students and and just what the landscape is right now? I mean, I always feel like the Debbie Downer. Um, I joke with my <laughs> colleagues, like, you know, a student will email me and say, hey, I really want to do a PhD with you. And of course, the first reaction is, that's great. That's amazing. It's amazing you want to do a PhD. Um, and, you know, usually the topic is so amazing. You know, I, I'm, I get really excited right away. And then you say, okay, but we got to have the talk. Um, and the talk, you know, for me, is just outlining the the reality of the labor market that we work in um, and really trying to reinforce that like you can do everything quote unquote right 
and you may not become a professional historian in the way that you imagine yourself right now. Like, you know, the idea of that tenured position at a research institution or an undergrad focused institution or, or whatever, that's not the default outcome. Um, you know, you have to be prepared to, well, you know all this, right? Like forging, forging different paths. And, you know, then you could talk about, you know, people who do amazing things with PhDs. You know, many of my friends didn't go the academic route. They have amazing jobs. They're super happy, but being prepared for it's not an inevitability. It's not like a, a straightforward career path is not, is not ahead of you. And so then if they persevere, you know, it's really just thinking about how you can make your, I think you have to be a little more entrepreneurial during the PhD than perhaps maybe like two or three generations ago thought you had to be. Like I know during my PhD, it was like working on a journal. It was doing digital stuff. It was activehistory.ca, for example. These kind of like side things that weren't core to it that actually turned out to be the things that actually landed me where I am today. And I think I encourage students to do the same thing, right? Like, you know, if you are really passionate about teaching, try to work with the Center for Teaching Excellence. Try to get things like that. You know, you can build expertise that's not directly on your dissertation and time is conscious, but, you know, it's like a choose your own adventure path. So hmm. go the teaching route. Go the, you know, if you're interested in gaming, find a research institute that might, you know, lend you towards that. Um, and just, you know, encouraging them to be sort of active agents as they think about how they can, you know, navigate the navigate the system and make sure it's an outcome that at the end of the four or five, six years that they're they're happy with. But, yeah. you know, trying to make sure people come in with their, their eyes wide open. And I think that's, I, I think few are coming in without their eyes wide open, that it's really important because you don't want to have people feel like, hey, I just spent five years of my life and in hindsight, I wish I hadn't done that. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that the key is, or at least for me is, is providing, as you say, coming in with open eyes, but as you go through it too, making sure that there are opportunities for people to do other things, develop skills, even learn how to say interview uh, for yep. a non-academic job, right? The only interview training I ever got as a grad student was for an academic job. And I never had an academic job interview. So that was kind of a waste of yeah. uh, a training session, right? Like having those things go in, and making it so that anyone who starts is being geared towards a tenure track job, like just make some of those other things, those peripherals more general and, and allow those, allow folks to learn those skills while they're still within the program. And that benefits the program too, because if people are leaving and going, doing things outside of academia and, and having success, that's just good for the program. It looks good for the program and, and everything that the university has to offer. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a culture shift in history departments and it's happening. It's probably slower than it should happen, but more, I think historians are increasingly recognizing that. And, you know, at universities across Canada, at faculties or graduate studies or at graduate, graduate studies offices, you know, I think there is more a recognition of the importance of these professional development skills and career outcomes and alternative academic careers and whatever you call it. And, you know, finding that right balance between what the central offices can offer and what departments can offer and mm. you know be, being encouraging you hear the horror stories right of people who right. say i want to do something different and they don't perhaps get the receptive the receptiveness from their supervisor or people that they really look up to the into the department that that you wish they'd had right and now as a vice president you are in position to put all those things in place you could just say yes to everything you could just say yes to all the crazy ideas or encourage other vice presidents to say yes to all the yeah. crazy ideas so uh yeah. ian milligan uh this is great I, I really appreciate you joining me today is there anything you want to plug anything you want to promote uh, while you're here 
Sure, I'll, I'll do a plug. So I've got a new short book coming out. It's open access. So I'm plugging only for your eyes, not for your money. Uh, <laughs> the Transformation of Historical Research in the Digital Age. So it's it's coming out as a Cambridge University Press element. So short little snappy book looking at some of the themes that we talked about today. Um, should be out September 1st. And you can hopefully just go to the Cambridge University website, you know, find my name or search for that title. You can download it. You can read it as a PDF help you go to bed at night. It <laughs> shouldn't cost you a cent. So you could use it in your teaching or just for your own edification. Awesome. And if you're listening to this after September 1st, I will link to it in the show notes uh, and, and you can get it uh, through that. So uh, Ian Milligan, thanks so much for joining me today. 10 years later. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. You make me feel old. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> And Victoria Lamb Drover, the first person I ever recorded with officially joins me from North Battlefield. Vicki, how are you today? I am so good. You, This is making me nostalgic and feel old at the same time. All at the same time. It's amazing. Uh, I'm so excited. It, it, it brings me so much joy uh, that we have reconnected uh, 10 years later uh, from our, that first recording session at the University of Waterloo. We were talking about... Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod, we were doing the participation stuff. Uh, right. What a crazy time. Like, uh, So I obviously remember the episode and, and that. And for me, CHA 2012 was really about the podcast. What do you remember about Waterloo and that particular CHA, if anything? You know what I remember? I remember the podcast. I remember, I, I believe it was my first CHA and I made below the byline, like like nosebleed section of the Toronto Post uh, for my research. And I was, uh, you know, I, I I was on cloud nine that my my research had made a national newspaper. I yeah. thought, you know, I've made it. This is huge, right? That's what I remember about that event. That, that's a pretty. That, that's a big deal. Like, yeah. Come on. Yeah, that's a that's a legit news source. You know, big circulation. Yeah, but it's not so much about me. That was a reflection of the the research is just so uh, so tr intrinsic to Canadian culture. You know, uh, Hal Johnson, Joe McLeod, body break, participation. You know, um, it just it struck a chord with people. Yeah, and uh, I I tell people this all the time. The first episodes are bad because of me. If you want to go listen to them, listen to the guest part, just skip through my parts uh, and they're, they're still worth listening to. Uh, and, and that, that certainly is one of them. So as I said off the top, one of the ideas of the show is like, what, what are people doing now? 10 years later, three people with PhDs who are at very different spots. So uh, your journey over the past 10 years has been very interesting, very cool. I got to hear about it a little uh, through email and you just uh, explained before we started to record a little bit, but what are you doing now? And uh, maybe a little bit about perhaps how your PhD in history has helped you in that regard. Oh, for sure. And I have to say, you were great at the beginning. Don't downplay <laughs> yourself. Um so over the last 10 years, so I, I finished my PhD, I convocated in 2016, but 2015, I was, you know, I had a good draft in, in place. And I was one of those, those um, PhDs that, you know, who went against the grain and had children while they were in their PhD program. And so I was at a kindergarten picnic of all places, right, um, you know, for my, my daughter. And there was 
I, there was one indigenous couple at this school, you know, it was a French immersion school. And unfortunately it was a bit of a white flight school. So we had a lot of people who weren't going there for the French, but for uh, ensuring that their children um, came from a particular socioeconomic background. And I, and my husband, and I noticed this couple were sitting alone. And so we, we, went over and struck up a conversation and it turned out that the 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 wife and the and the couple was the president of the local college. And you know, our daughters played well together. We had a lot of connections in terms of, you know, our academic circles. And she said if I would consider taking on a job as um her manager of corporate services, you know, doing the government reporting, the strategic planning, the policy development that she needed done so she could focus on the external relations the college needed. And I said, well, you know, I'm a historian, right? And, and, uh, and she said, can you think, can you research, can you write? And I said, yeah, I can do those things. She's like, then that's what, that's what I need. And so, uh, I, I, you know, with a draft in hand, but not PhD completed, I, I took on a full-time position with a department assistant and a department to oversee. And, you know, I, it was, it was jumping in the deep end and faking it till you made it and trying to go through revisions of the, you know, the, the dissertation while sort of negotiating the first year of a new position. So it was, it was a really steep learning curve. You just sort of had to, um, had to figure it out as you went, but then that position led to another and led to another and led to another. And now I am the associate vice president of operations and advancement at the Saskatchewan Indian Institute of Technologies, which is one of four accrediting post-secondary organizations in Saskatchewan and the only one that is governed under the FSIN, uh, so the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations. So our governance structure is made comprised of chiefs from all treaty areas of the province. So I, in terms of my areas that I oversee, I oversee operations, which includes IT and facilities, feature COVID response, as well as advancement, which has marketing, communications, external relations, and alumni. So it, it was it was not what I set out to do when I started my PhD, but you know I think as we talked about previously, you you take the next exciting opportunity as you go. And then you look back at the at the journey and you you sort of make these links of, so that's where we were headed, right? You know, um, my project on participation, my master's that looked at women and inclusion at the University of Saskatchewan, my, my work at, even at Mount Allison University was always about how do people who have been historically marginalized by systems uh, found what inroads and, and, and re-empowerment within those systems, and my work in administration has followed that vein. You know, how do we, mm-hmm. how do we create uh, equality through socioeconomic advancement, through education for people in regional colleges who need to complete their adult 12, need to, to, to uh, get skilled training so that they can elevate not only themselves, but their entire uh, economic unit. How, you know, how do we uh, empower Indigenous people who are, uh, brilliant and skilled and remove barriers to their academic success, right? So it, when you when you look back hindsight in the rearview mirror, it all makes sense as building towards something. But as you go, you're just taking one opportunity as they come. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have a very similar thought about my career too. Like somebody asked me once, or I was in a training session, they said, oh, like, can you summarize your career philosophy in like a sentence or a phrase. 
And I sat there, like they gave us like 20 minutes to do it. And I, the only thing I could think of was yes and, like the improv thing. Like you say yes and then figure out the next step after that. Just like that's really what I've done with my career is just yes and everything. And I, I had the opportunity. I was in China and I'm on a bike in Xi'an, China for this professional thing. And a couple of years later, I, I was giving a talk at North Bay where I did my undergrad and I started the talk by saying, there's no line between me moving to North Bay as a 17 year old and having this opportunity being on a wall in Xi'an, China. Uh, th there's no line there. And then someone came up to me afterwards and said, yeah, there is like, you just got to pay attention to it. It all actually makes sense when you think about it. And it, it, it's, it is fascinating to think of your career as in that sense, maybe it's super optimistic to be like, oh, everything always meant something. It was always coming to something. But it, it, I do really feel that way. And I wonder for you, how much of your graduate experience doing that history, not only just the, the skills that you learned, which obviously have, have done you very well uh, in your career post-academic life, but just the experience of the research, the writing, sort of the independence that comes with it, or even the critical skills, the critical thinking of history, how much do you think those experiences and, and understanding and having a historical framework for things has really been a guiding force in what you do now? Well, I think beyond you know, the, the academic skills, you know, my mom was an elementary school principal and she said half of what you learn in school isn't on the curriculum, right? It's, mm. it's everything else. And I think about my experience in graduate work very similarly, like, you know, the ability to research, synthesize, right? Absolutely. Uh, but the ability to ask the questions that people are uncomfortable asking is something innate to history. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I learned so much from my research supervisor, or she hated the word supervisor, my research advisor, uh, Valerie Kornick, was answering the so what question. Mm. And so often when you get into administration, it is, well, we do this this way because we've always done it this way. And it's having that comfort to say, why? So yeah, we do this every year. So what? What do people get out of it? You know, we make this publication every year. Three people read it. Why do we do it, right? Uh, and revising or revisiting those questions, right? So that sort of rewiring your brain to ask those uncomfortable questions and being comfortable being in that uncomfortable space, right? Because you, when you when you create change, people find it uncomfortable, mm -hmm. right? And creating that comfort level. Um, so, and knowing that one thing moving right into it, man, right into to management is knowing that we can disagree professionally and still be okay personally, which in academia, we debate, we contradict, we question each other professionally all the time. That's how we make progress. Right. Uh, but we can still go for a beer. Right. Um, that's not something that you necessarily see in all professions. So uh, people coming from an HR background, people coming from a business background or from, uh, from a variety, they, they don't have that, that innate need to question us as a way to progress our, our thinking. And so when we get in those uncomfortable places and those conflicts, they have a real difficult time no uh, navigating it, whereas I feel my training prepared me for it quite well. 
right? So it's, it's those, it's those soft skills that, that I received, you know, how to, how to um, ask the right questions when you're dealing with someone who doesn't want to give you a yes, right? Um, and in history, you would often come across people who would say, well, we've never done it that way before, right? And, and how, you know, how do you, you navigate those, those bureaucracies and those people and, and get where you need to be. So I, I think those were, those soft skills, like, absolutely, the writing, the research, you know, the ability to synthesize, those are, those are things that have served me well, but what's allowed me, I think, to prog- uh, to progress in my career as quickly as I have are the interpersonal skills that I yeah. developed uh, during my graduate work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ability to sit there and listen to criticism and take it in and absorb it and not be defensive. Like those, that's something that you don't get. Certainly, I didn't really get during an undergrad at all. Uh, it took a graduate school to have those experiences. And uh, it, it is extraordinarily valuable. And I'm wondering, I, I don't know how much you pay attention to trends in the discipline now. Obviously, you're still involved uh, in an educational setting at a, at a high level. So maybe you have a sense of this. But do you feel as though the the historical discipline, or, or maybe just even just higher education in general, still puts people in those positions that you just described, still allows space for those discussions to happen that that benefited both of us uh, so much in, in our careers is the is there still space for those types of things and, and are they still happening from from your experience well I, before I, I talk about that i want to touch on what you said, said there sean about you know thick skin right like um my first second third boss were really surprised when i wasn't um, offended by edits, right? I said, ah, oh, please, yeah. please edit me. I, like, this is a yeah. collective document. I, uh, I, I want this to be the best it can. And this is a collaborative effort. You know, we, you know, when we went through the idea of getting a first draft through, which was unheard of, you needed to have three, four, five drafts, right? Yep. Um, or at least I did, right? Um, you know, from what, I, uh, I've spoken to colleagues, stay in, t- uh, stay in touch with um, members of the field. I think that in an effort to try and ensure that we create a safe workspace for um, for people who have historically been marginalized due to race, class, or, or, or sex, um, we may have sacrificed some of that um, some of that desire to really push people, right? Um, you know, I, I've seen PhDs, well, mostly masters, masters come through that are, uh, the research is really weak because it's mm. uh, two or three interviews uh, and it's um, self-reflection on the journey of a historian through the lens of, um, you know, a Ukrainian woman from the West. Well, that's that's great if it's done properly. If if the lit review really talks about, you know, who's worked in that field and how that's evolved, and um, and, and if those connections are made throughout, but they're not being made, right? Uh, people are are writing 125 pages about their their personal journey, and that's getting getting through as a master's, which is it uh, isn't the rigor uh, that that student needs to personally grow. And I don't know if it's necessarily contributing to the literature. Like, how do I use that in my research? How do I reference it effectively, right? 
Um, and, and one thing that, you know, towards the end of my PhD, I, I made the decision, you know, irrespective of my, the opportunity presented to me that I wasn't going to pursue the academic path. You know, I, I looked at it and the output that was being required, you know, being able to produce, you know, eight, 10, um, articles per year. I just didn't think that was conducive to a work-life balance or necessarily to the rigor of research I wanted to put out. Because when you're putting things out that quickly, are you saying anything new, right? Um, yeah. But the, but there was the the need to do that to keep up with with the, with the Joneses in the field, right? Um, and I I opted out. I said that's not what I want to do. If I want to write, I want people to read it, and I want it to mean something. Um, so it just wasn't the right path for me. Yeah. And yeah. And that's, I think a lot of people have gone down that path with, with great success and with, with no regrets. And, and so I've already kept you longer than I, I said I would. So I'll catch you out of here on this. Do you have any regrets about pursuing history at the, the level that you did? Uh, and what would your advice, I, I think I know the answer to that question, but what would your advice be to anybody coming through now? Be, like so, someone who's just starting a PhD. Well, I am, you know, you know the answer. I have no regrets. Yeah. <laughs> I had a great experience, right? Um, I knew I wanted to get the PhD. The PhDs open doors. Absolutely. You know, the number of times I get asked what my PhD is in? Never, ever, <laughs> right? Um, but I'm asked to wear my regalia at convocation. I'm asked to, uh, to be an expert in, in a variety of areas, right? But no, no, um, what the PhD is in uh, is relatively irrelevant and for me. The second part of your question, should, I, 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 any I advice for for anyone just starting a PhD in history wanting to pursue uh, history at the graduate level? Uh, what would your I, advice be? You know, one thing that when I, I used to be invited back to the U of S to give talks on uh, time management and um, career pathing, and there were a lot of people who did their undergraduate in history and then went right into the master's and then right into the PhD. And they felt they were owed something at mm. the end of that journey, that they, they should have a job handed to them. And I, I, this sounds harsh, but you need to remember that these educational tools are just that, tools. They're, they don't guarantee you a job. They don't, they don't, create opportunities for you necessarily, you need to take those tools and use them. So what I would say is go in with that mindset that you're going to get a lot out of this. It will uh, provide you with the skills you need to succeed in a variety of fields, but be under no illusion that someone's going to hand you a job at the end of it. Very well said. Very true. And yeah, the employment side of things is something that I think we need to do collectively. Any, anyone who's still involved at the academic level of, of teaching that to people, it is a skill of how to go get a job and how to leverage the skills that you've gotten, uh, the tools that you've gotten through your education uh, into employment. It, it, and it's something that I don't feel I really got. And I've kind of, I think, stumbled my way through uh, to the point where I am now. Uh, but it is something that we need to focus on a, a lot more for sure. So uh, that's a, I, I totally agree. 100% uh, agree with your answer there. So uh, Vicki, if people want to keep up with all the things going on at SIIT or, or anything else, anything you want to promote, uh, share with folks? Well, I, all I do all day is talk about how fantastic the school is. How much time do you have? <laughs> um, 
one thing I'm really excited about that we're, we're doing uh, is we're building the first Indigenous-led entrepreneurship accelerator in Canada at our Saskatoon campus so that Indigenous people within Northern Saskatchewan can come in and say, you know what, I, could, I have this idea, but I don't know how to get it to market. And we can support them in developing their business plan. Uh, they can have tanker space to develop their prototype, conference room for their pitch. And we give them micro grants at the end to, to, to really sort of launch them, as well as making those connections with the industry that they're looking at. So, you know, we're looking at a lot of startups coming out of that to really, as a form of economic reconciliation for the Indigenous people of Saskatchewan. And we know that the population here is is growing and that the only way for Saskatchewan to continue to lead is to engage this this segment of the population. So I'm really excited about the accelerator and our innovation. And we're actually bringing that into community with our mobile maker lodge. Uh, I was able to secure the resources to buy a Tesla, uh, which we now drive into community for week-long um, week camps in Indigenous communities where we offer drone technology workshops and 3D printing and coding so that if you want to trace historical hunting grounds or uh, use the drone technology to find unmarked graves or do security contracting for your, your First Nation, you know, we can show you how. And it, so it's, it's, it's a, a really cool place to work and we do so many cool things. And 95% of our students are Indigenous, 65% of our staff, uh, and we're only growing. And it's amazing to be part of that journey. So if you want to learn more about SIT, go to SIT.ca. We're on all the socials at SIT Live. And uh, you're, it's easy to find me on that website. Awesome. And uh, check the show notes below. We will link to all that as well. So uh, very cool stuff going on. Uh, it sounds so amazing what you're doing. And uh, it was so great to catch up. Victoria Lamdrover, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much. And, you know, it just speaks to your your historical acumen that you could track <laughs> me down. I'm a very good researcher in that regard. Yes. <laughs> All right. And the man, the myth, the legend, Aaron Boys joins me first time in a while, but I didn't count Aaron 20, 30 appearances over the last 10 years, something like that. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure when you're here. Uh, but again, you haven't been here in a couple of years, partly because of the pandemic and the reality of how things have changed over the past couple of years. And uh, you live in the middle of nowhere and you decided during the pandemic, as many other people have decided, to go from the middle of nowhere to like the middler of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would argue that I moved to closer to people, considering the fact that I'm in a village now. Uh, before mm -hmm. I was on uh, an 80 road and now I'm on a 60 road because then, you know, I've got neighbors that are close by and there's like <laughs> subdivisions and such. So, so I mean, I wait. How was my walking score? I still don't remember. Was it low still the last time we looked? The walking score is really bad. Really? Also, the like the vibrancy score. I believe it's the vibrancy score too. That was like oh yeah, that's one, what it was. one out of ten or something. <laughs> not really. Uh, not not so much vibrant. Uh, but of course, I live in downtown Ottawa, and perhaps uh, the city downtown has been a little too vibrant so far in 2022. So, uh, you know, who, who knows who's right in this Yeah, I will debate. say I, I felt a little bit insulated from the, uh, from the convoy back in, uh, in the winter. It was kind of nice viewing it from afar, not 
not that I enjoyed viewing it, but the fact that I wasn't subjected to it and that uh, it didn't impact my daily, my day-to-day life was, was pretty good. Yeah. All right. So 10 years ago, we were both graduate students at the University of Ottawa. And I came up with this harebrained idea of what if I went and talked to people and you were the first person who I approached as a person to talk to because the people at Active History asked if I would do a pilot because anyone who might be listening to this who's listened the whole time of since 2012, God bless you, uh, you might notice that Aaron of the three guests is the one who's not included in the first three canonical episodes of this particular podcast. That's because you and I did a podcast pilot in a seminar room at the old history department at the University of Ottawa, a room that no longer exists uh, oh, yeah, in right. the, the renovations of that space. And we did a good enough job that the guys said, go for it and, and do the show. And I, I want to know from you mm-hmm. what you remember about 2012 and not the show in particular. If you remember anything about that day, that's that's fine. But just in general, like what was your approach or your thought to history and what was your general expectation of career path moving forward after you completed your degree? Wow. Um, yeah. I, when you said it was 2012, I, it kind of hit me. I can't believe that it's already been a decade. Um, (laughs) when you asked me to come on for this and you said it's the 10th anniversary, it kind of blew my mind. So, um, 2012, while I was uh, in year two, or I guess year three of my PhD, and I think I was at that point, I was going to be doing, I would have been doing research. And career path, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I had become disillusioned with the entire academic process yet by that point. Um, I don't know if my zeal for completing the dissertation had waned or not at that point. Um, so who knows, maybe I was bright eyed and saw the world through rose colored glasses and everything was going to be okay. Uh, lo and behold, four years later, thankfully I finished it, but, uh, you know, that joie de vivre was definitely gone. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, looking back 10 years ago, if I were to tell myself that I would be, you know, living where I am, uh, married with a kid, uh, I wouldn't have believed it uh working for the government uh i probably would have believed since it's ottawa and a lot of people (laughs) inevitably end up being drawn to the government so that i could believe um but i think i i thought i probably would be doing something more with history uh i don't know what that would be be it a researcher be it uh i'd love to say writer but or copy editor who knows but i think i thought i'd be doing more of that but i'm not and uh Sometimes I think it, it's a little disappointing that I'm not as actively engaged with it, but uh, how things worked out are ju- is just as fine. So you mentioned you work for the government, and uh, occasionally when we see each other, work stuff comes up. Very rarely, though, mercifully, because government stuff isn't, frankly, very interesting. So people and, – and, you know, people have asked me sometimes, like, hey, like, what does everyone do? Like, the, the, our, the, there's a group of guys uh, who we still see each other somewhat regularly and communicate somewhat regularly. And people say, well, what do those guys do? And all I know is that each of them work in the government. And uh, when I see their work emails, there's a lot of letters that I don't know uh, what they mean uh, yeah. after the at symbols. So uh, what exactly is it uh, do you do? And how do you feel, if at all? 
your training as a historian has influenced your career path? So I work at Employment and Social Development Canada right now. I'm working on the international team and my team is responsible for social security agreements. So if anyone knows what those are, they're international agreements that Canada signs with other countries to ensure that people who have either lived or worked in Canada and a country that we have an agreement with are eligible to be or eligible for their social security pensions. So the OAS, uh, Old Age Security, uh, CPP, Canada Pension Plan, those are the two big ones. Um, We've got a bunch of agreements in place. It's really fascinating to see how the process is developed between poaching another country or having another country approach Canada. Um, Canada is very actively engaged in doing these things. I think it's wonderful. I mean, in this in the world how it is, we're so interconnected uh, to ensure that um, seniors are able to get Social Security benefits through these agreements is really fascinating. So uh, I'm really enjoying what it is that I do there. Um but as for my training, it has absolutely nothing to do. Um, I guess, if, if you will, like, it, there's no history involved with it. There's no historical research. There's no consulting the archives for these things. But I will say that my graduate program, and of course, I would say undergraduate to a degree as well, made me a better writer and critical thinker. And so that I think, and I think that is the main message, of course, of trying to do those things, as lofty as that may sound. But it makes you think critically about what it is that you're doing and approach things from a very analytic uh, kind of way um, for writing purposes, of course, as well, that you can write clear and concisely uh, and present information in a way that everyone can understand. I know that when I was hired for this position, my manager at the time saw that I had those three letters at the end of my name and was like, oh, wow, very impressive with the PhD. And so, of course, me being me really had to temper. It's like, eh. <laughs> If I have a PhD, that might kind of ruin it for everyone. So apologies <laughs> right in advance. Um, but a lot of people do have that. And it's kind of nice um, when people see those letters and say, oh, okay, well, obviously you're able to take a lot of information, condense it down and present it in a, in a communicable way. It's interesting that people in the government, some people in the government, through my experience too, are impressed by the PhD at times. Mm-hmm. But I, I also find that sometimes it's situational where... They're impressed when it's a convenient time to be impressed by it, if that makes any sense. And at other times, it's like a hindrance, potentially. Uh, like, it can go both ways uh, at yeah. times where where people see it and be like, well, no. like, Or they assume that you won't want to do something or won't want a certain position uh, yeah. because of that. All right, so, so it can go both ways, uh, certainly a, a little bit. And it's interesting that you talk about how the content of what you did doesn't necessarily apply but the skills do. And is that something that as you were going through the process, going through the experience, and we've talked before, I think we have very different impressions of what the experience was. I very much enjoyed it all the way through. Uh, you did not enjoy it all the way through. I think there was moments you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. But as you were going through it, did you feel as though there was support or there was a conscious effort on the part of those around you to point out that it's not just about getting the degree, it's about those skills and honing those skills and learning how to market yourself based off of the skills that you developed doing a PhD in history? It's hmm. a great question. Um, thinking back on it, I think there was a mix of that. 
I know that doing like doing our comps, I think was a great exercise of digesting a ton of information and presenting it again in a concise manner. Um, so that I think is, is, uh, like if you want to look at comps for that regard, yeah, absolutely. Taking a lot of information and such like that. Beyond that, I'm not entirely sure. I know that through the writing process, I had a lot of help and I had a lot of guidance in actually writing it, but I don't know if it was ever presented as in, well, these are skills that you can use in the workplace. I think I heard that more maybe during my undergrad than I think I did during my grad uh, programs. Um, I know for my undergraduate, it was a lot of writing properly, writing good, uh, writing quite well. And then saying, well, you're going to be able to use these later on in life. Whereas the grad program, I don't know. I can, I almost feel as though a lot of people take it for granted in the sense that, well, you're just going to go on to academia anyway. You know, you're, you're doing this program and you're going to, you're going to fight for scholarships. You're going to fight for research grants and you're going to be a part-time professor or something somewhere, do something in that regard. So I know, I don't think that's wholly interesting of a response, but again, I, I there's me maybe looking again through it through rose colored glasses thinking that, yeah, I think I did, but maybe I didn't. I don't know. Did you ever want to be a professor? Did you want to go into academia at any point in your life? Yeah, I think before well, doing my master's, absolutely. And then when I started the PhD, especially with comps, I thought that was uh, that was really cool. And then I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunities that I had to teach uh, classes or at least be a lecturer. I really enjoyed those. And I thought, yeah, this is something I could do. And then I hear about the politics and I see things that go on inside history departments and you hear horror stories from people who are way better historians than I am and I will ever be and better writers and everything and that they struggled through it all. They you know, were able to only get part-time assignments uh, every so often that uh, basically we were told that universities are focusing more on the sciences and arts are getting slashed like crazy and that... Mm -hmm it just became a lot more difficult. And so that kind of idea of just fighting tooth and nail for everything like that just did not appeal to me. And I was done. I was just, I was ready to pack up and, and head out. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get to that point too. Like there, there, there's so much hustling you can do. And I think one of the misconceptions that, that takes place, and I'm critical of some people with PhDs for, I think coming across is expecting that, oh, I just deserve a job because I have a PhD, which isn't necessarily the case. And, and nor should a PhD program automatically lead you to a tenure track job. Uh, that doesn't jive with me. But if you have a PhD, you can hustle. You know how to do that. You know how to scrounge around, if I may, for the opportunities that do exist at that level. Like if you can put up with it all and get to that end point, then, then you're capable of that. The question, though, is just how long do you want to do that? And it is clear that in this job environment, that hustle side of it doesn't always coincide with life balance. And yeah. if you do want to start a family and do those things, it's it's not impossible, but extraordinarily difficult to do that in the environment that it currently is. So I think a lot of people have have gone that way with really no regrets, right? I assume you have no regrets about leaving academia or at the same time doing the PhD. I, I, would, I would assume, if I may, that if you could do it all over again, you would do it the same way. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, actually. It's funny. Maybe not. Okay. I, no, that's funny because uh, 
a friend of ours, a good friend of ours, uh, Michael Thompson, he and I will chat every now and then and we'll say that the PhD, again, at times was fantastic. Obviously, uh, the group of friends that we talk about, we're all staying in touch and whatnot. We all did our degrees around the same time. Um, and those were some pretty good times, obviously, you know, working uh, whenever we felt like it. We got together a lot more. I don't feel as though life was really crashing down on us as it kind of does sometimes now um but at the same time mike and i will talk about it and say that we if we didn't do the phd would we still be where we are in our careers say with the government except for five or six years ahead because we didn't take the time to do a phd and obviously it's all hindsight who knows um there are absolutely moments where I look back and I loved, like I said, I think comps was my favorite part about it as much as it burnt me out. And I remember when I finished my comps, I was sick for a month because I was just so burnt out. Like I just, every cold that could possibly enter my body did. And I collapsed for a month. Reading Um, hangover. Reading hangover. Exactly. Um, But I thoroughly enjoyed the comps just because of how much reading I got to do and how much learning I got to do that that part about I loved I loved just consuming knowledge and the different viewpoints and then going and meeting with professors and just chatting kind of like we're doing right now I I loved doing that um but the writing of the dissertation was a pain the researching became a slog at times you know trying to find new materials or locating materials and saying oh I don't have enough money to get to where I need to go to get these there's a way that I can somehow get these um yes and no I, again I, I I'm right in the yeah. middle there I want to I want to I'm not giving you good answers and people may listen to this and say this guy's nobody what he wants to say but it's, it's true I um some days are or I look back and say this was a great decision and then there's other days I look back and say man that was just a waste of six years yeah and I, I think one of the things for me when I look back at I certainly don't regret a second of it and Sometimes I even yearn for it because I had that much fun during the process. But the thing that I that I always come back to is because I, I you know, whatever age I am, I still don't really know what I want to do for a living, uh, yeah. like full time is like a full time singular thing. I'm assuming I never will. And as a result, I can't regret that time because what else would I have been doing? Like there, there have been times in my life where I've worked nine to five jobs and hated it, like absolutely like just like did not like going to sleep because going to sleep meant the next thing that I would do is get up and go to work. Like yeah. that's how, how bad I like some jobs that I've had. So like thinking about the doctorate, it was never like that for me and being a few years behind on a career. I mean, okay, but is this my career? Like, I don't even know. Right. Like <laughs> it's just one of those things where uh, for me, I, I have those discussions with myself at times and then I have to turn something on so that I stop doing that. And avoid. <laughs> cycling uh through all those emotions you know yeah i think if anything the one thing that i appreciate having the phd is that i like to bug my wife about it so if if nothing else i think that's a win there's a show that we're watching through right now brooklyn 99 and at the end there's a credit for the company that produces it and they say uh not a doctor and after every time every time we see it without fail i will look up from my phone and i'll say to my wife i'm a doctor and she'll just roll her eyes. So, I mean, for for that joke alone, and because I know I get an eye roll out of it, I think it's worth it. Totally worth it. Absolutely. <laughs> like the title, the, the title, I, I enjoyed less than I thought I would. I'll be honest. I thought it was going to be more fun, the title. Oh, really? But it comes in handy on occasion. Okay. Uh, usually, usually in, in, like, I thought it'd be fun to 
like go to a restaurant and have a reservation for Dr. Graham. I've never done that because if someone starts to choke and they see on the reservation <laughs> sheet, there's a doctor there, that person's going to die. I mean, I know yeah. how to do for, I, I've done first aid and stuff, but like you probably want a real doctor around, uh, like a medical doctor, I should say, not a real doctor. Uh, no, so, absolutely. You know, right. So I know that, that uh, there, well, uh, there's times when we've, we've seen each other outside and people who don't know us say as well. And I've uh, referred to you as, Oh, Dr. Graham. And people kind of give me that look like, why is he referring to it? And it's like, Oh, well, Sean and I did our PhDs together. And then the same, that same reaction, like, what? Oh my goodness. That's so cool. Whereas you and I are kind of like, is it though? Like, mm -hmm. really? Yeah. Yeah, I remember like, you know, we've, we've done a cottage weekend. Your dad was there, four guys, uh, with PhDs. Yeah. Uh, I would assume, I know at the start of the weekend, he was like, wow, four guys with PhDs, smart guys. I assume by the time we left, he was like, maybe we need to reevaluate the educational system. <laughs> uh, if these guys all have PhDs, I, I don't, I don't know if that was his reaction, but I could imagine based on some of the discussions that were had, <laughs> that would be a natural reaction. So I, I want to talk a little bit before I let you go here yeah. about, we talked about, or you mentioned how the content of what you did doesn't necessarily apply directly to what you do, but how much does a broad base of historical knowledge have? Your PhD, you got a lot of knowledge about how governance works, how a cross-border exchange works. You You have a lot of that from the doctorate. So how much of just that broad knowledge is beneficial to you in what you do now? And how important do you think a broad historical context is really for anyone going into a government position? Well, I'll share a, a story that I always found quite amusing that, um, so before the most recent presidential election in the United States in 2020, my director found out through the grapevine that I have a PhD and that my specialty is Canadian-American relations. And she sent me an email and asked if I would present to our team meeting, to a small team meeting, about why the United States uses the Electoral College. And I said, sure, yeah, I'd be happy to do that, no problem. And then, uh, lo and behold, a week later, uh, somehow my director general found out about it, and my director asked if I would do a presentation to the entire directorate. So what I thought would be a small presentation to, say, 10 people, ballooned to 75 people uh, during my lunch hour. So I immediately went into historian mode and I consulted a whole bunch of sources uh, in the evenings and whatnot. I was reading books and articles and you name it. And I prepared this presentation almost as if I was teaching again. <laughs> and I loved it. And it was great because it was something that I was interested in and I was able to present to other people. And I think they found it interesting as well. So that training absolutely has helped. And that, I think, is leads to your question about the context. Uh, I'll get to the, uh, the other part in a second. But I think we were chatting a little bit before, but I think context, of course, matters, right? And I think you're absolutely right that we need to do a better job putting things into context right now. There's a lot of information out there, and people can absorb and consume content wherever. I know that the Twitter machine is a very popular place for people to go. But the problem with Twitter is that it lacks a lot of context. And I know that a lot of historians are on there and are doing great work to provide said context to people. But I think somehow the profession needs to do a better job of inserting itself to provide this context, the historical context of people. Things don't happen in a vacuum, as we know. Uh, things happen because of other things. Things don't just magically appear and then make an influence and then disappear. They came from somewhere. Um, so I think that 
if we can do, and I see we, including myself, who doesn't do anything with history, can do a better job just helping provide that context, we might be doing a better job. And then as for the broad breadth of knowledge, um, as I said, I, th I think it's the skills the most that really helped with that. Um, I remember one of my professors in 2008, before I graduated, told me that if I wanted to be a better writer, I needed to read better history and read better authors. And I thought that was a fantastic idea. She said, to become a better historian, to become a better writer, you need to read better things. And that has always stuck with me. So I challenge myself as well. If I start reading something that I don't understand immediately, I try to buckle down and really try to think about what it is that this author is trying to tell me and how it is that they're presenting it. And then, of course, we know there's a lot of bad writing out there. There's a lot of fantastic writing out there. And I try to look at it from both ways and say, what can I do to present the ideas that I want in the best way possible? Very well said. And uh, liberal order framework. Uh, so anyway... <laughs> Uh, thank you so much. I, I agree with what you just said. Absolutely. So, uh, very well said. And I appreciate you coming on all those times. I didn't count up. I should have gone back and actually counted up what the total was, but I am very appreciative of your contributions to the show over the year. It's always fun to have you on, uh, in whatever context it is. And not all of them have been silly episodes either like some of them have been real actual like, historical <laughs> discussions too right i think i think megan's idea of when you come on is when we're doing stupid stuff and occasionally <laughs> it's been silly episodes yes but sometimes it's been very real genuine historical discussion as well so i'm yeah. very appreciative uh, of your contributions i've said this to you offline before i don't know if you remember it but one of the things for me that i think really helped me in my path uh, to get to Boston when I got there was the show. And the show, in my estimation, doesn't exist without you. So I'm very appreciative of your continued support, always coming on, uh, including today. So thank you very much. Is there anything you want to promote, direct people to, or uh, any final words uh, 10 years later? Uh, well, I, I will... Just take a moment to say you're absolutely welcome for everything. Thank you so much for including me in these things. I always enjoy my time coming on here. Um, I appreciate you inviting me back every time. Anytime you need help, you know I'm there for you. Um, I wish I had something pr to promote. Um, <laughs> maybe the only thing I'll say is uh, we're hoping to continue with our year in review in December, as we always do. We're cooking up something. I don't know if uh, if that's a good enough tease, but for anyone listening it, that yeah. also reads our uh, our annual year in review, Sean and I are working on something now that uh, we hope you're going to enjoy. So look out for that in December. Otherwise, um, no, that's it. Summer's around here in the nation's capital. So everyone have fun, stay safe, and uh, enjoy it. Yeah, I was actually on the site last night on the back end of the site, and Somebody yesterday was reading the 1911 year in review. Hey, fantastic. For some reason. Uh, but hey, always love when people find it. So yeah, check out those years in review 100 years later. One of the, our favorite things to do every year. So uh, Aaron Boys, the man, the myth, the legend. Thanks so much for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. My chats with Ian Milligan, Victoria Lamb Drover, and Aaron Boys. And I, of course, thank them all for their time both 10 years ago and over the past week when I was able to speak with them. And just on a personal note, I have no regrets certainly about doing a PhD in history. When I went into it, I had no goal of becoming a tenure track professor. I just knew that in the spring of 2009, when I was coming to the end 
of my master's degree at the University of Regina that I didn't want to get a job, that I knew at that point in my life that going and trying to secure some form of full-time employment was not appealing to me. And the funding opportunities that were presented were good enough for me that I could do it without taking what I felt at the time. And in reflection, I still feel this way, wasn't a major financial hit to me, that I was able to sustain myself off of the financial packages that were available at the time, which I know have since gotten worse and are not worth as much, at least in terms of purchasing power, as they were back in 2009. So I was very fortunate that I was able to get that funding right when I started, and I was able to increase that funding through OGS and Shirk and a couple other things here and there. So for me, there wasn't a real financial hit or financial penalty in doing the PhD, and I was able to live a lifestyle that was appealing to me at the time. And as I said with Aaron, sometimes I long for it and want to go back to it. So I would encourage anybody who's thinking about doing a PhD to try to figure out the funding levels. And can you do it without setting your financial track back too much? And if you've taken out a lot of debt to get to that point, do you want to take out more for something that who knows what the end result is going to be in terms of employment? But if you can really focus in and get lucky as I did in securing a lot of funding from internal and external sources and sustain yourself that way, along with some teaching opportunities here and there, some research here and there, you know, TA jobs, uh, research assistant jobs, that sort of stuff, I think there is great value in doing it. And if it is something you want to do, I would certainly encourage you to do it, but just take the proper precautions or or do the proper preparation in, in doing so. And, and I have absolutely no regrets of doing it. I have loved most of my career uh, to this point, and I certainly look forward to seeing what comes next. And uh, before we actually look ahead to what comes next, uh, just a quick note from me to anyone out there who has ever listened to this show. If, if you've listened since the summer of 2012 to now. Thank you. If you're new to the show, this is your first ever episode. Thank you for listening. If you've listened in piecemeal here and there, depending on the guest and the topic, I am incredibly appreciative that there are people who listen. I've said this before that part of the genesis of the show, the idea of the show was that I wanted to learn stuff and I wanted to talk to interesting people who did interesting work. And that has kind of driven me in, in doing the show, continuing the show, even at times when the numbers might suggest that maybe I shouldn't have continued doing the show. But what has kept me going is knowing that I have learned so much and that I have enjoyed the process with the exception of editing here and there, but I, I really do enjoy the process of doing it. And I love the conversations themselves. And if those weren't as much fun as they are, maybe this wouldn't have lasted 10 years, but they really have been a pleasure for me. And then putting those out there in the world and getting feedback here and there 
from people who have listened to it, who've enjoyed it, people who have questions and, and maybe think some of the interviews don't go deep enough or question occasionally the topics that we talk about on the show. You know, I've, I've really appreciated those too, the, the critiques that have come in. And just knowing that there are people out there engaging with it is very uh, incredible to me. And I am so, so thankful to everybody who has ever listened to a show, who has ever downloaded it, who has left a review, positive or negative, uh, just anybody who, is, who has done anything related to the show. I, I certainly can't thank you enough that uh, the 10 years has really <laughs> flown by uh, in some ways for me. So I just wanted to say a big thank you to everybody out there, uh, specifically uh, Ian Milligan. He was my main contact at the site when we started this. Uh, Jim Clifford was in charge of the RSS feed early on and putting that together. Jay Young was a big part of this. Chris McCracken doing the social media for the site for so long. There's just been so many people on that back end of the show who have really been supportive. And I'm so appreciative of all of that. And, and all of the guests who have ever come on, I didn't do a count of how many, but I would venture a guess it's in the 250 range, given how many times you've had multiple guests on an episode. Uh, I just uh, am so appreciative that they've shared their time and their knowledge and their expertise with me so that I could share it with all of you out there. And it's really, as I say, just been a great joy and a huge part of my career that when I started it, I did not expect it to be a huge part of my career or to enjoy it as much as I have enjoyed it. So thank you to everybody out there in podcast land. It has been a lot of fun, and we plan on keeping that fun going moving forward. Look out for uh, an announcement about the show that will come out either next week or in a couple weeks uh, of what we're planning on moving forward. It's largely going to be the same. It's not like a groundbreaking announcement, but we are going to make some changes to the show. I feel like that 10-year point, it's a nice round number, and 220 episodes, this is 221 that's roundish enough for me. Uh, so we do want to make a few changes here and there to the show. But the bulk of the point of the show, the, the entire purpose of the show, of me having discussions with interesting people who have done interesting stuff within the realm of history, that is not going to change. So with that, I will say thank you, everybody, for listening Please do subscribe if you have not yet, wherever it is you get your podcast, likes, rates, comments, all that good stuff. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, we do have the YouTube feed as well. Uh, you can click subscribe, hit that bell. Apparently that uh, does a thing, according to all the YouTube experts. Uh, but we do have the YouTube channel as well. And do head on over to activehistory.ca. All the episodes are there under the podcast tab. And if you want to let me know what you want to hear, historyslam at gmail.com or on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So that's going to do it for me for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And as always, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.